Good evening, everyone. Welcome. My name is Tom Neenan, and I'm very pleased to welcome to the stage Grant Gershon. Everybody knows. Thank you. Director of the Los Angeles Master Chorale, and Cynthia Miller, who is going to be playing on the Messian piece, a very interesting instrument that we're going to talk a little bit about, called the Onde Martineau. So thank you both for being here. So before getting into the instrument, I wonder, I want, there's a nice little quote in the program that talks a little bit about Messian and, and color, and this is obviously very important. I just want to read it to you, and then we can maybe a little talk about it. Messian himself writes, what does a rose window in a cathedral do? It teaches through imagery, through symbolism, through all the characters that inhabit it, but what most catches the eye are its thousand spots of color, which ultimately dissolve into a single pure shade. You know, and so Messian is all about, I think, all about color and texture. So I wonder if you could maybe, both of you, ruminate in your own way on some of the influences of Messian, the things that, that turn up in this, in this piece and much of his music uh, that, that we can hear that are in the, in the elements of, of color and, and texture rather than the kind of normal, uh, normal parameters that we think of in uh, melody and, and rhythm and so forth. Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll jump in and start. So I, it is interesting. I mean, as probably some of you may know, Messian had this, this condition called synesthesia, where he would see colors, literally see colors in music, and not just general like I would or regular person would, but truly like vivid colors of orange and blue or, or mauve. And, and so he writes about, he writes this into the music. And actually in this, in this piece, very specifically because Messian wrote the text himself and the, the sopranos and altos of the, of the choir sing about all these radiant colors and very specifically orange, blue and, and yellow and again mauve and the various colors of flowers. And it's, extraordinarily vivid music and it's it's hard to put into words really the way that messian treats all of the instruments in this case in this piece it, it's strings and percussion mallet instruments that are kind of emulating a, a, the a gamelan of bali and of course the solo piano which is very prominent and my favorite instrument of all of course is the owned martineau and in this piece it's it it creates an absolutely extraordinary, unique color to it. It's a bit hard for me to verbalize, but it's, you, you know it when you hear it. It's just, it is absolutely just psychedelic, this, this music. It's a, it's a wash of color, really, in, in many ways. Yeah. So the instrument, I asked Cynthia if I could play just a 20 seconds of, uh, of YouTube. But if you want to know more about this instrument, go to YouTube and put in her name and then Onda Martineau, and you'll get a, a wonderful guide to the Onda Martineau. But I wanted to make sure that everybody knew, was acquainted with the sound of the instrument that we're going to be talking about here. So I'm going to play about 15 seconds of this from her YouTube guide to the Onda Martineau.
wasn't that wasn't too painful. <laughs> <laughs> she really didn't want me to do it at all, but I sort of begged her. So, tell us about this instrument. So, I f should just say that that is really only one of the many colors that Messiaen asks from the Ond Martineau in this piece. But as you can tell from that short extract, one of the characters of the instrument is to be very vocal. In fact, uh, in many places in this piece, the Ond Martineau is asked to really sing and to sing higher than the voices of the chorus. Obviously, it's electrically powered, but it was invented in the 1920s, so it's not a synthesized sound. It's actually, by electronic standards, extremely primitive. But what is really special about it is that the player is in complete control of all the elements that a string player or a woodwind player would be. I've got a microphone in one hand, so I can't really show with both hands what how it's done, but the right hand is preparing the pitch, either on small keys or with a device which moves up and down in front of those keys, which is a, effectively a sliding frequency so that I can float between pitches, which of course is something that a pianist cannot do. But here's what makes it so special. While the right hand is preparing the pitch, as a, as a woodwind player would be preparing notes on an instrument or a string player with their hands, the left hand is actually producing the sound. So there's a, I don't know how, where you'll be sitting, but there's a drawer that comes out of the left side of the instrument within which a number of, I suppose you'd call them stops, like on an organ. So I have the ability to go from a very pure sine wave sound, the purest sound there is, through to something with many more harmonics in it. But within that drawer, there's also a raised key. And by depressing that key, I produce sound. So the two hands are actually making the sound happen. And because the tiniest variation in pressure is making quite a large loudness or softness, it has, a, I do think, I mean, I have to be careful about the word unique, but it does have a uniquely human character because each of us that play, Grant will back me up, we all sound really different because we have complete control over vibrato as a string player would and also just how we come and go within the sound and also from getting from one sound to another, whether we go directly from one to the next or whether we smooth our way from one to the next, which is also something, by the way, that is marked in my part. In some places, Messiaen writes really jagged, very wide vibrato. You'll notice this in the last movement. That sounds kind of angry and full of harmonics, but equally there's the other end of the spectrum, which is the very sweet, soft, often very high, sort of floating, not an echo because it's happening simultaneously, but a, a, a kind of halo of almost sort of metallic sweetness over the, over the singers. It, it's, it's, it's like an aura, I think. You know, it's like a, almost like a sacred aura. Or a rainbow. A, a rainbow. Well, and he talks about rainbows, a very, very important. So yeah. I asked, naively asked Cynthia when I met her this, this evening, whether she rented an Onda Martino here or brought her own, and that, that got a laugh. But it's not 
it's no small feat to, to bring this instrument from London. It wasn't, it wasn't really a laugh of pleasure. <laughs> it's complicated. It was invented in the 1920s. It hasn't actually changed enormously since then. I would have to say that Martineau did not design it for traveling. It's extremely <laughs> heavy and it's extremely fragile. And this is a terrible combination when it comes to shipping. So there's always the, there's always the hard decision whether to, have, whether to create heavier flight cases to protect it. But of course, the heavier the case, the harder it falls. Um, I brought it in on, I say I, it was shipped ahead of me on two pallets. There are seven pieces. You'll only see six of them because one contains the legs and the leads and so on. Yeah, it's, it's a feat. And I bless my shippers every day of my life because you need people who really understand that it isn't just about getting something fastest and cheapest. It really has to be done with loving care. But so far, so good. Excellent. Thank you. So, Grant, if you would just say a word before we wrap up on, on Messian and go on to Villalobos. I mean, this is, a, this is a deeply religious piece, as was so much of Messian's music. But it's also very exuberant. And, and we were talking beforehand, the Messian specifically uh, directs the singers to kind of, he uses the word speak, but it's almost shouting, I think. So where do you find the, the religiosity, if you will, or the sacredness in this piece? Well, it's one of the things that I love about Messian is that he is a deeply spiritual, was a, a spiritual composer, was a very devout man, but his spirituality is so open and, uh, and exuberant and sensuous and, and multifaceted, and, and that to me is what makes it universal as well. This is, like, like all of the greatest sacred music, it transcends dogma, and it, to, to my mind, it creates a universal space where we can all feel you know, a sense of awe at, the, at the, the enormity of creation and the universe, and I think you know, that's something that, that Messian just embodies so beautifully, and it, it's part of what the 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 Onde Martineau in these pieces as well. It, it, to my mind, it just it takes us beyond the the physical, beyond our bodies, uh, beyond what is possible by by humanity on itself. It, it's it it takes us into this realm of incredible aspiration. And, and yet, and yet, the middle movement is so loving and, I mean, I would say cozy, but that's not quite right. It's catchy, it's fun. I heard this piece first when I was around 14 years old, and I can absolutely see myself in my school with the radio hearing this piece and just just finding that I was sort of in a, in a warm embrace. There's nothing, there's nothing difficult about this music. I mean, it it's, may not be something you've ever heard before, but it's not arm's length. He's really, he's really gathering us in, I think. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's great that you mentioned that middle movement because I find that to be one of the great earworms. I just, once we start rehearsing it, I cannot, and I think all the singers will attest to it as well, 
They sing it better than I do. But it's just like that. It just goes. Oh, it just really gets in your head. And I have this. He asked for me to make this like a little punching, sort of like a little popcorn bursting sound on each note, which um, when, when all these things are put together, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's irresistible. Yeah. And, it, and it dances. Look, and it dances. It, it's just phenomenal. You're, you're, you're edging into a, a, a question that I, I wanted to ask you, and I, I think you've already partially answered it, but there, there certainly, inevitably, will be many members of the audience who've never heard this piece and maybe never heard Messian. And we have to admit that Messian's music is complex. There's a lot, there's a lot going on. So I wonder what you would, you would tell someone in terms of, you know, what, what, should, I, what should I listen for? What should I, what should I be hearing in this? I, I, mean, I just think he comes to you. I, 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 honestly, there's going to be something that Something for, I mean, it, it sounds corny to say something for everyone. This, you can't resist this piece. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I really right. feel I can safely guarantee that you'll be very glad you heard it. Yeah. And you'll wish you could come tomorrow. <laughs> and maybe you can. Maybe you can. Uh, uh, yeah, I, and I remember, I remember hearing this piece also the first time, and I think I was around the same age, 14, 15. I don't even know how I got my hands on the LP. But I did, and, and I, you know, it was one of those pieces that always just stuck with me. So, well, thank you, thank you for being here, and we're looking forward to this. I'm going to be here tonight for sure, and Sunday. So I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm grateful to you for coming and spending great, some time. Great pleasure. Thank you. Oops, sorry. Thank, thank you very much. Okay, good. So let's talk a little bit about the other piece then in which the master chorale, now including the men, uh, are going to appear, uh, Villalobos' Chorus 10. What, what, can you, what can you tell us about this? It's kind of a crazy piece. Oh my goodness, this is such a fantastic piece. The Villalobos is, um, it was written in 1926, and Villalobos, of course, was the, was the great composer from Brazil, who was born towards the, the end of the 19th century and lived until 1959. And he wrote 14 of these pieces that he called Choros, and this is number 10. And each one has, you know, there's one for solo guitar, one, for, one or two for piano. Uh, the, each one was a different, kind of just a completely different conception. And this is the one that's for big orchestra and chorus, and it's just a party piece. Uh, it's not surprising that, that Michael Tilson Thomas is ending the concert with this because it's that kind of piece, there's nothing that can follow it. And it's, it's a combination of, it feels like very um, kind of old Hollywood, in a sense, it, it's this big exuberant orchestra with lots and lots of colors and it, it's invoking the, the Amazonian jungles and invoking popular music from Sao Paulo and, and street, Rio. Street, 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 yeah, street, yeah, yeah. street music, yeah. Um, and in fact, the, so the piece is about 12 minutes long, and the orchestra has its way for the first five or six minutes, and then it's about halfway through the piece that the, that the chorus starts to sing. And the chorus, um, 
Villalobos kind of creates his own language for the chorus at the beginning, which is based on some indigenous Amazonian languages. So, uh, so for instance, the, the tenors, as I recall, they start off, and then the altos, and it builds up one on the other until you have eight parts, because each of the uh, parts of the choir is divided, and everybody is just rocking out on this thing. And then he introduces what was a very popular song in, um, in Brazil, at the time, the melody is very sentimental. And it keeps going. Of course, the, the, all of these rhythms underneath are still going on. Um, and the, so the, the story goes, evidently, that um, that Villalobos wrote this, wrote the piece with this popular song in it, and with the words in Portuguese of this song, as well. And um, very sad words, tear my yes, heart, tear my heart to pieces. And evidently, the the poet who wrote the words was unaware of Villalobos creating this piece, and he found out about it ten or fifteen years later. And he and basically he approached Villalobos and said, well. I should get some money, uh, or, or a cease and desist is going to come your way. And so Villalobos revised the score and said, you can sing it on ah. Ah. <laughs> and so for, I think for, for quite some time, that was how the piece was done. We will actually be doing the original uh, Portuguese words in this as well, which is a bit of an adventure for the singers. We don't often sing in Brazilian Portuguese, and it has some, some kind of idiosyncratic uh, vowels and consonants to it, but, uh, but it, it's, great, it's great fun, and I guess the poet is dead, and, uh, and so... Well, I think uh, it took years for them to finally they, they, come yeah, together. They, they figured something out, some kind of agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'll hear, you'll hear the sopranos singing this, this melody kind of in, in somewhat slow motion under this, under this stuff that's going on, you know, this jungle music kind of that's, that's going on. It's really, it's really, really fun. Yeah. So. And I should just mention the very last chord of the piece, which he has the, the choir divided into, um, I guess, 12 parts. So each, you know, tenors in three, sopranos in three. Um, and basically, it's the loudest sound I think I've ever heard a choir make. He's got the, it, those of you, any sopranos in, in the house here, or anybody who knows a soprano. <laughs> um, so the, the sopranos are up um, on a high C sharp, that note, and then the, the rest of the sopranos are down there. And they, so basically, everybody is singing the loudest note that they can possibly sing quadruple forte, the orchestra drops out and you just have this wall of sound and then the orchestra comes crashing in for a final button. And as I say, there's no way you can do anything after this piece because you know you have to go home and soak your vocal cords. <laughs> Which reminds me, I wanted to just give you a, a little word of warning. In the third movement of the Messian piece, near the end, there's this huge buildup and this huge climax, but that's not the end. It's not the end. So when you think it's over, don't do anything or people will, will, will scowl at you. It ends very quietly after this. So you can thank me later, but I just, I just know what's going to happen. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much. I really oh, appreciate your being here. Thank you. Enjoy.
Thank you so much. So, a little bit of information now on uh, WC's fantasy for piano and orchestra, and uh, the opening piece, the WC's prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. I'm going to use the piano a little bit, so I just want to get this stuff out of the way. The, the fantasy was composed to around 1890, and it's only really a few years, four years, before he wrote the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn, but the pieces are on completely different sound worlds. It's really quite amazing. The, the fantasy for piano is, is more or less a piano concerto, but he doesn't call it that. It's in three movements. The second and third movement are connected. Um, and, but it, it bears very little resemblance to some of the great big 19th century, early 20th century piano concertos that we think of by Rachmaninoff or Tchaikovsky or Greek. And when we think about Debussy, we tend to think about pieces like The Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn or La Mer or The Engulfed Cathedral, these pieces that have been called wrongly impressionistic. Debussy hated that term. He never used the term for his own music, but it, it's a term that, was, that began to be applied to Debussy's music, and it, it kind of stuck. Um, the piece is in fairly standard kind of concerto form. It's in three movements. The first movement has a, an exposition and a development and a recap and all of those things. But what I think is interesting about this piece, there's two things. I think he's kind of a Janus looking backwards and looking forward. Because in, the, in looking backwards, he's looking back at the, at the piano concertos of Mozart and, and, and Beethoven and, and, and Schumann. But he's also looking forward to the Debussy who will appear in about, in about four years. And I want to just point out a couple of places where I think that you'll, you'll be able to uh, hear that and appreciate it. The, there's a little introduction. And Debussy's musical material in the first movement is based on, not exactly on this one, but is based on a pentatonic melody, and a pentatonic melody is a melody that uses a, a pentatonic mode or scale, and that's, the easiest way to do that is just to put your foot down on the pedal and then play the black keys. And that's, that's a mode or a scale that, that turns up in a lot of Asian music. The, the, the mode that he uses is slightly different, but the pentatonic scale is great because you can just play almost anything on the black keys, and it all sounds pretty. And he uses a, a, a pentatonic melody at the beginning in the introduction, and then he, he sort of reframes it for the beginning of the exposition. So let me just play a little bit of the same melody, how it's transferred from the beginning to the uh, exposition. This is the introduction. And it goes on, and then the piano sort of, as, as happened in the uh, Mozart E-flat concerto, the piano sort of starts trilling like, hey, I want to I get in here. 
And then those ideas are developed, and, you know, presented, developed, and then represented. Near the end of the exposition, we hear a passage that uses another device that Debussy is going to use a lot in a few years, and it's another mode or scale. Um, just like the pentatonic scale is not major, sorry, and it's not minor, Debussy uses what's called a whole tone scale, and it's just exclusively whole tones on the piano. It sounds like this. And I always used to tell my students at Caltech that the whole tone scale is a favorite for composers who write uh, music for um, soap operas. The, the woman is dreaming. And Debussy uses that idea a lot in his music later on. So this is what I'm saying. It's kind of looking backwards and kind of looking forward. Here's a little spot near the end of the first movement where we hear this whole tone scale come into, into play. I'll point it out to you. Very, it's, it's very subtle. Um, the, the, the second movement is a beautiful dialogue between the piano and the orchestra. The, the, piano, the piano and the pianist never really exert themselves so much in this. Never, never really sort of take over. Um, and so in the second movement, there are these beautiful dialogues between uh, the pianist and the members solo members of the orchestra. And then the third movement recaptures some of this material in a very, very driving, fun, exuberant finale. So it's a, it's a piece that you'll, if you know Debussy's music, you'll think, oh, that sounds like Debussy, but this is a piece that he actually never heard performed during his lifetime. The, the story is that the, that the, the, compo uh, the conductor of the premiere was Vincent Dandy, another great com composer of the, of the time, but Dandy was complaining that he didn't have enough rehearsal time. So his idea that he presented to Debussy was to just do the first movement. And the, and the story is that Debussy walked around the rehearsal space and picked up all the parts and went home. And he put the parts in a box and it never came out. He dabbled with it from time to time, but it was, it was, not, it was not published until after his death. So it's, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful piece, and you're going to hear the Debussy to come. So now I want to say a word about the Prelude to the Afternoon of Fawn, which comes along in about four years after this. But I'm not going to say the first word on the Prelude to the Afternoon of Fawn. I'm going to let somebody else say a word about this piece. And when Debussy turns the fawn into music, it's Mallarmé's dream come true. A drowsy numbness does indeed invade this opening bar. Where are we? In what key are we hearing this flute of Pan? It's in no key at all. Well, maybe E major. Oh, yes, definitely E major. But then, here's vagueness again. Mm -hmm. 
moving to the most unlikely chord possible, the dominant seventh of E-flat major. E-flat? But it was just E major a second ago, wasn't it? Well, E-flat, E-natural. How easily they can be confused in this faunish dream. And now where? What? Nowhere. A bar of silence. Six slow, silent beats of no music, just as in Wagner's Prelude to Tristan. But do we know there are six beats? How do we count silence? Do we care? I love that. How do we count silence? And do we care? That, of course, is the great Leonard Bernstein talking during one of his Harvard lectures. So I was, I was saying that you know, this music came along at a kind of a, a, a time of transition for, for Debussy. And it's at a point, it's at this point that he really begins to introduce ambiguity and what Bernstein calls vagueness in his music. And Leonard Bernstein in, the, in this lecture points out that it was right around this time that writers such as uh, James Joyce and the French poet Mallarmé began abandoning certain elements of convention, convention and form and syntax. Bernstein talks a lot about, about syntax. And the, the poem by Mallarmé gave rise to this piece by Debussy called The Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. It's not a prelude to anything. There's no, nothing that follows this piece. It's an independent piece all on its own. There are a lot of opinions about when modern music began or when 20th century music began. A lot of people think it, that 20th century contemporary music began in 1859 when Wagner wrote... And if any of you were here for the Tristan Project, you, you know all about that from listening perhaps to Peter Sellers talk about it. Pierre Boulez says that it was the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. He wrote, the flute of the fawn brought new breath to the art of music. Other people will, will claim that it's when Schoenberg jumped off the cliff of, of tonality and into atonality around 1910. But Boulez makes a good, a good point about uh, about the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. And to, but to understand this piece, um, and I'm keeping on my eye on my time, it's helpful to look at the music of a couple of other composers who were very influential on Debussy. Debussy spent a good deal of time in Russia, and he knew the music of Modest Mussorgsky very, very well. Mussorgsky did what a lot of these nationalist composers did near the, in the second, third, the third third of the 19th century, and they began using non-Western elements, such as pentatonic scales and whole tone scales in their music, so that their music would sound distinctively Russian or at least not German, which was the prevailing music of, of the time. And, and Mazursky in the opera Boris Gudnov, he spends a lot of time with these ostinatos. And an ostinato is something that repeats over and over and over. Stravinsky is the master of writing ostinatos. But in the coronation scene from uh, Boris Gudnov, Mazursky puts a couple of chords together 
that in the world of music to that point had never lived next to one another. Just like the way this Bernstein is saying, you know, we were in E and then we're in E flat, where are we? Mazursky does this. And Debussy picks up on that, and he uses that same kind of an idea. Here's a little song from Mazorsky. Open up my phone again. A little song from Mazorsky that doesn't use those chords, but uses other chords that in the 19th century just were not allowed in the same household. <laughs> Now, a couple of things about that. You hear that the chords in the piano are kind of repeating over and over underneath the melody. And you'll see how those chords also sound kind of disassociated. Here they are. I mean, it's neither major nor minor, and it's neither C nor F or A flat. It's, it's somewhere in between. The other thing that, the other influence on Debussy was his good friend, who Debussy really put on the map, and that was Eric Satie. And Satie started, started um, playing around with new chords, not necessarily that didn't go together the way these Mazorsky chords of the, or the earlier uh, Debussy chords I pointed out, but what Debussy, or excuse me, what Satie did was take a kind of a conventional progression of chords such as this, which goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, and he, he kind of spruced them up, making them a little jazzy. So we, instead of this, we have this. And you know this piece. Etc. It's a very, very simple thing, but those kind of what we would call now jazz inflections turn up in Debussy's music, for example, um, in the uh, piano preludes that come along around 1910, it's, it's full of them. Here's a little bit of the piano preludes from 1910. So we, we, have, we have all of these things sort of, that sort of come together, and Debussy makes much more use of the, the whole tone scale. And the whole tone scale in a piece like Voile from the Preludes of 1910, overtly stated is like... 
again, neither, neither major nor minor, something in between using these scales. So the piece was premiered in December of 1884, and WC wrote that the music of this prelude is a very free illustration of Mallarmé's beautiful poem. It is a success, succession of scenes through which pass the desires and the dreams of the fawn in the heat of the afternoon, and then tired of pursuing the timorous flight of nymphs and naiads, he succumbs to intoxicating sleep in which he can finally realize his dreams of possession in universal nature. Well, this music was so evocative of nymphs and naiads that Vaslav Nijinsky and Sergei Diaghilev decided to make it in, take the music and make a ballet. And that ballet came out in 1912, I think it was. And it really caught the, the, the Parisian public by surprise, not because of the music. The music itself by that time was, you know, 20 years old almost. And everybody knew Debussy's music. But what got people going was the choreography and the costumes by Nijinsky, who was a very, very daring choreographer, dancer, and costume designer. So in 1912, this piece is premiered in Paris at the Théâtre de Champs-Élysées, still there. And the day after, Gaston Camet, uh, who was the editor of Le Figaro at the time, he refused to publish a favorable review of the piece by one of his critics. Instead, he himself wrote a front-page article that included, among others, this little bit that I'll leave you with. He wrote, we are shown a lecherous fawn whose movements are filthy and bestial in their eroticism and whose gestures are as crude as they are indecent. The overly explicit miming of this grotesque beast, loathsome when seen full on, but disgusting when seen from the side with his tights on, was greeted with booing the booing that it deserved. That, of course, made the ballet a huge hit. And, <laughs> and the Parisians flocked to this ballet for, for days and days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks after this review came out. So it's the first piece on the program. You can think of Nijinsky or you can think of Nymphs and Naiads, whichever you prefer, but I know that you'll enjoy it. So thank you for coming tonight and enjoy the concert. <laughs>